Welcome to Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling, your host. In this episode, we're going to talk about natural disasters, big disasters, different kinds of disasters, and different ways of looking at disasters. My guest today is Debarati or Debbie Guhasapir, the director of CRED, the Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, and the founder of the Emergency Events Database, MDAT, trained in Calcutta University in India, Johns Hopkins University in the United States, and the University of Louvain in Belgium. She has a PhD in epidemiology. Debbie is also involved in field research and training in humanitarian aid issues in regions like China, Sudan, Mozambique, Ethiopia, Cambodia, Somalia, and Central America. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Anders. Wow. It really sounds like uh, you're a true global citizen. And I understand you just came back from a, from a week off in France. Now, how was that? Well, yes, it's a lot better than living in Brussels. But um, yeah, it went off really well, really well. The weather was wonderful and Burgundy was, um, was really beautiful. So everything went well. Yeah. Some good wine there, I guess. Good wine, good weather, good views. Yeah, yeah, the whole lot. Sounds nice. This is the place you normally go to when you when you have some time off, or no, no. Normally in the summer we would go to the south of France to the Luberon, you know, to mm-hmm. um, near near Gore, then Lacoste, um, all of it in the south of sort of in the south of France. Um, but this time we didn't want to go too far. We didn't want to stay in hotels on the way. So we were, we were avoiding overnighting in hotels. Okay. So this was Burgundy from Brussels is about a four or five hour ride. So you could make it all in one day and we have a rented villa that we have. So um, it's our, our own. We don't have to go to public places too much. Okay. And these are special times, of course, but you do travel a lot in your work, don't you? I mean, considering your yes. field research and yes. all that. Yes, I Normally. do. I travel a lot. Yes. Uh, I like to go to the field in general because I feel that that helps with my credibility of being able to interpret my research results. So it's not just a theoretical thing that I get data and I crunch it around sitting in Brussels drinking you know, Belgian beer. No, I, I'm out there in the field and it also helps me to understand how things actually happen in real life you know numbers and analysis is one thing but real life can actually contradict what your numbers are saying that sounds wise yes i I understand why you have to visit places to, to to get a foundation of what you're researching so you are actually as I mentioned here, you are the, the, the founder of the world's, as in my view, the world's uh, best and most reliable database on, on natural disasters. And, uh, but at the core, you are an epidemiologist. So I was thinking we might just begin with what is uh, uh, on, on everybody's mind these days. So what do you have to say about the ongoing pandemic and, and how it is handled? Right, the pandemic, yes. I mean, we get a lot of questions. The, 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 the database, as you rightly said, um, you know, much of its glory is because it is a unique database that captures all natural disasters 
I, you know, I don't want to say many wonderful things about the quality of the data, but the fact is that it is the only database in the world that captures all the natural disasters, of which we have a category called biological disasters. And in biological disasters, we have different kinds of events like, you know, as varied as locust infestations. You know that there are huge uh, problems with locusts in, in Sahel Africa, which can come and completely destroy crops. So that would be a biological infestation disaster. We have epidemics. So, you know, epidemics which are outbreaks of diseases, but which are usually in a confined um, space. So you have an epidemic in a town or a part of town, some villages, and then you have pandemics, which is what we are facing right now. Um, this is, I mean, this is an unusual um, situation. And this really, it's an unusual situation in many ways, and everybody knows it by now. Uh, this tremendous um, expansion across countries is something that we have not seen very much before, but is something that we are likely to see again. And again, why do I say that? Because mm -hmm. you see, even if you look at the Spanish flu or even the Black Plague, you know, in the 15th century and 16th century, most of this was linked to um, the transmission of the disease was linked to travel. So people going from one place to the other. And what has happened, I think, today is that travel has become so ubiquitous and so intense and so severe that any outbreak of a disease which is highly transmissible, like COVID, is likely to spread around the world. And that mm. is essentially the globalization of, of, of disease. And we have to be prepared for that. There is no more saying that the disease is in Africa, we don't care, it's happening somewhere else, it's happening to those people in Africans or Asians or whatever, it's going to happen here if you don't control it there. Yeah, some people say that this, is, this entails the end of, of this global traveling that you were talking about, the ubiquitous traveling, but you don't, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't believe that. End of global traveling, that's going to be really hard, you know? Yeah. Trade yeah. off between the world economy which is quite dependent on travel and the disease spread is going to be a hard one. Uh, that said, I think, but this is just, you know what, I, I, I travel a lot. I would make maybe six or eight international long hauls and maybe, you know, few dozens of short haul flights a year. Now I travel a lot, but I'm still not the largest customer of airlines. The largest customer of airlines are the business community right mm. the business community they i mean i know people who go to china twice a month from europe um, in private sector so the private sector is the huge consumer of airline travel what i think is and the united nations unfortunately <laughs> what what i think is going to happen and i'm almost sure it will both the private sector so the business the corporate sector and the un will have discovered that you can actually conduct business equally efficiently without having people rushing over for 24 hours, which I mean, this is also done 24 hours to Singapore and to Hong Kong or to mm -hmm. India or something. They're going to realize that. And I think they will voluntarily, in fact, even for economic reasons, cut back on travel very seriously. So, but I don't think it will put a stop to it. We don't know.
I don't think it'll just stop. No, and there is a trade-off, as you were mentioning, I mean, between the, all the positive things uh, that comes from traveling, that comes from migration, that comes from uh, people meeting each other over across the borders. And uh, I mean, peace-wise, not least, um, which I think is maybe a little, little bit underestimated. Uh, so I also personally think it's it's not a good idea if you stop traveling, but, but, but many many changes in people's habits we might see in the coming years. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think you've raised a very good point there, you know, in the sense that I think much of the, um, I'm, I'm going to say something which is a little bit going beyond um, what I want to say is that much of the tolerance of diversity in the world, I mean, there's a lot of it that's not happening as we know now, but a lot of the tolerance of diversity in the world in the last two or three decades has been due to cheap tourism, you know? Well, because for cheap tourism is what? It means that people who normally wouldn't have traveled very much or seen foreigners very much or eaten foreign foods very much or understood or liked uh, a person who looked different from you, uh, suddenly they go to these places, they go to Senegal, they go to, I don't know, Benin, they go to, I don't know, wherever they go to uh, and see all these people. And I think the fear of the unknown and the fear of foreigners actually goes down. Mm-hmm. When you go, you say, oh, we've been to holiday in Vietnam and, you know, and or Laos or something. I think there has been a lot of good things with travel. As you say, it just, it, I think it helps to understand yeah, other so people I, I, who I, look I, different, I so. who mm-hmm. eat different. And I think that's a bit underestimated in this, this whole debate. But, and there's also mm-hmm. other, other things to be said uh, about uh, air, air travel and and how much or how little it affects climate change but that's that's a different issue uh but going back to covid-19 how do you think uh, were, have you been surprised uh, uh, uh about the the extreme reactions that we have seen towards this pandemic i mean we have had viruses before we've had pandemics before and diseases not least in the in, in the so called um third world countries and uh, but all of a sudden almost every country just uh, decided to lock down their societies uh, completely because of this virus that is of course a bad thing but it's not the end of the world uh, what, what's your take on that well you know i i have a rather a marginal view on this um and i i i'm cautious about expressing it because I may live to eat my words or not live to eat my words. <laughs> okay. So, um, but, um, but, you know, I mean, rather unpalatable truths. One is that um, flu has been a source of high mortality for years now. You know, most older people who die actually die of respiratory conditions, respiratory distress, most older people. You know, you know of people, you know people who are 80, 85, 90, who died and things. If you look at the cause of death, they will almost always be respiratory. Okay, so so this is a problem that is quite widespread in our societies. The respiratory distress, uh, end of life respiratory distress. Second fact is that about 90%, I was just looking at the data this morning, about 90% of the people who've died, I, I don't know whether it's Belgium or worldwide. Worldwide, it can't be worldwide. We don't have the data for it. But at least in Belgium, 90%, and I think it's the same for all European countries, um, 90% of the deaths that occur, occur among people over 
65. Yeah. And most of those occur over people over 80 and almost a huge number occur over 90. Okay, so that means what? That means that countries with a very aged populations are going to suffer more from this. Okay, you have to die of something at the end of your life and this is, this is it. So countries which are younger, like Africa, where up to 40% of the people can be younger, uh, can be younger than, um, than 18, huge young people, they, you didn't get some symptoms and they will not be so ill. So to me, I think one has to be more careful about this draconian measures that we take against this, this disease of these violent lockdowns. And, you know, violent by violent, I mean, you know, without any flexibility, um, it's not immediately clear to me whether the cost of this is, is not something that we have to look more carefully. You know, we really, I think there is, there is an issue here. I think, it, I think somehow this disease has got, has made Western countries very scared and rightly so. Because Western countries are all older people, essentially. Yes. Japan, I mean, Western and richer countries. All of them, except for Australia, New Zealand, and countries like that, they're all older people. And the United States, perhaps. And the United States, yes. In the United States, something curious is happening there is that a lot of the cases are among um, the ethnic minorities, among the Blacks and the Hispanics, but, which is not the case in Africa. Right, so Africa doesn't have very high rates of disease. Still very low. low, very low, very low, very low. And but in America, the black community, the African American community, have higher rates than the white community. But that I think is linked not to their race but to their um, economic conditions. Okay, because the black community, the African-American community live, are by far the poorer um, community of the country. They tend to live, you know, in very close circumstances. They have less access to healthcare. They have less access to hospitals and therefore they have a higher propensity for disease. It's not their ethnicity. You know, I spoke last week with a professor of epidemiology in Oxford, Sunetra Gupta, and she said that she had been worried that this um, pandemic or the lockdowns actually would, would cause a health crisis in the developing world. And she said that she was now seeing this, exactly this happening. And you are the, the lead author, I, I understand, of a new uh, study, a new paper published in Science that shows an alarming decrease in the number of children that are getting measles vaccine now because of COVID-19. Can you, can you tell us more about this study? What has happened, which we think, it's a group of us, huh? it's not just me, we are five of us. Um, what, what has happened is that UNICEF and WHO, who, jointly, um, who are jointly responsible for the measles vaccination campaigns all over the world, in poor countries, in poor countries, not in rich countries, they are responsible. They are the ones who procure the vaccines, they deliver it to the countries, and then they make sure that it is spread out. About a month ago, or a little more than that, WHO UNICEF decided to postpone the 
measles vaccination campaigns. Uh, postponed, which means that this is unofficial information. I mean, the, the, the fact that this postponed is not unofficial, but it has postponement is, you know, denial is the, 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 the um, is a form of saying no, you know, but denial is a form of saying no. I forget the other thing. Anyway, so what they've done is they have postponed and it will definitely, these campaigns are not going to happen until early next year. So early 2021. So now you're getting a situation where when this decision was taking about nine months, eight or nine months of no measles campaigns. That's one. Second thing is measles campaigns are actually uh, high intensity campaigns where you go out and vaccinate everyone you can see. Uh, and then there is something called routine vaccination. I don't want to get nerdy about this, but you know, there's something called routine vaccination, which means children come to the primary health care, the moms bring them and they get vaccinated. They're all told that you have to bring your child when it's nine months old, but before it's, you know, whatever, 18 months old, you have to come. So these are the two kinds. So one kind is going out into the villages and vaccinating everyone you can see, essentially. And the other one is having the children come to you, come, come to the primary health care. Okay. Passive, passive and active. Now, having postponed this, two things have happened. One is that the routine vaccination programs have also taken a beating because, because of the lockdown in these countries and sometimes very brutal lockdowns. You know, the governments are not very authoritarian governments and they can be really rough on their citizens trying to show their power. There are cases of this. Have you got no. any examples of that? You, you, you want us, do you want to mention countries? No, I don't want to mention countries. Okay, fine. Um, no, I don't want to mention countries. Okay, sure. Um, so um, it's mostly, Authoritarian governments, you know, um, I'm just thinking of which one I could mention, but I don't want to mention it anyway. It's a, neither here nor there. The, 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 the issue is that um, the lockdowns can be brutal, which means what? Which means for the routine immunization, mothers are hesitant. If not, they don't. Take their little babies, walk two kilometers, four kilometers, eight kilometers to the primary health care to get it. They won't do that because they will get beaten on the way or they will be sent back or whatever. So they don't do that. The campaigns where they go to house to house campaigns, that has been stopped because of the lockdown, they cannot go house to house. So altogether, the measles vaccination is stopped. We think it is an extremely dangerous policy decision because you will have a whole bunch of children who will not be vaccinated, who will be very unlikely to come back later on. New babies will be born all this time. They will not come back. And you're likely to get a very large cohort, a very large group population of unvaccinated children. Mm. This, is a, this is like a bushfire, you know? This is, you have susceptible children who are not protected. If there is one spark, of measles cases, two or three measles cases, this thing will take fire. It will immediately, mm. it's highly transmissible. This is one of the most contagious diseases that, 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 that are known, I yes, understand. Exactly. It's exactly. And, it, and it's a killer in, in, the, in these countries. Absolutely, it is a killer. Last year, 2019, early 2019, within a matter of, I don't know, I, you know, I don't want to be quoted on this, but maybe 
three or four months or a little more, more than 6,000 children died. 6,000 mm. children died in one province of the Democratic Republic of Congo. In one province. It so in one, in one province, during three months, 6,000 children were killed in measles. Yeah. Measles. Measles. And, and COVID-19 doesn't kill any child, does it? Not so far, no. Not so far. So I don't know. When you're desperately poor, you know, you're making a trade-off between saying, well, maybe my child will die of COVID. And so far, children don't die of COVID. We all know that. Right? Very few people, children die of COVID. Very few children die of COVID. So you, are, you have a situation where you have a mother who has three small children. And what is the trade-off? Trade-off is maybe the children are going to get COVID and not die. Mm. Or maybe they're going to get measles, which is much more likely and a certainty, and then they will die. So to me, I mean, I would even say that it's a no-brainer, really, you know? Mm. You mm. Don't Sounds like a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah. You, the United Nations should, should, be, should be talking about this and, and, uh, and uh, telling this to the world. That yeah, this can't I'm happen. We can't, we can't stop... Yeah vaccinating against measles just because of this coronavirus it's it's it seems crazy to me yes it's un it's uh, it's um you know what it's a rash decision that is what it is i'm sure that it is well meaning and it's well intentioned and you know and there is a much higher um, pressure from covid-19 lockdown is necessary much higher pressure on that than the pressure, a much weaker pressure, saying that hey, we need to carry on with our measles. Why is that? What's your explanation for that? Andres, I don't know. You know, I don't know what it is. Is it the I political pressure from outside, from, from the outside world, from the rich countries, from the United Nations organizations, or from? I mean, that, that, or, or, or do these lead, leaders you were mentioning, these authoritarian leaders, are they, they simply want to show that they are mighty and powerful, or something? Yes. Um, you know, I think, now you're going to say that I'm being paranoid, but I think COVID is a great source of fear and danger to the Western countries because they have aging populations and the mass of the infections are occurring there. That is where it's happening. So this is, this is a source of great fear. This is like actually the AIDS reminds me of that also, HIV AIDS. Mm. So once it touches the Western world, I'm simplifying it a bit, huh? but once it touches the Western world, the richer countries, the older people, um, then that becomes the top priority, right? And small malnourished African children, honestly, you know. Not so prioritized. <laughs> Maybe less, maybe less. So, so what is possible is that everybody is so scared of COVID right now. They have pressured, I think maybe WHO, UNICEF, you know, which are funded by Western countries. UNICEF is very heavily funded by Western countries, voluntary funding. They, might, they may feel under pressure that do everything to deal with COVID. Measles we'll see afterwards. Mm. I don't know. 
It's just a conjecture. It sounds a bit crazy, but it's, it's very interesting. It's, it's fascinating. I'm sure there are some, some explanations. And, and this will be more studied. You can, you can rest assured that the, there will be more studies on these effects, I, I, I understand. Don't you think? There will. There will. In there the will. years to there come. Will. Yes, they will. I mean, as I said, we are a group of five authors in this. Yeah. And all five of us was, were sufficiently um, moved. I mean, they, they, we are people who work together, but not on this. And everybody here thought very strongly about this. And I'm sure it will be something that will come back up to the surface. Mm. That you have to find a balance. I'm not saying you have to you know, not do something about COVID. Absolutely, you have. But you have to find a balance. You know, you can't have like a pendulum that, you know, everything goes to on the left side and we forget about the right side. Yeah, sounds like a wise conclusion there. So this is um, really interesting. I would like to, to, to continue to the, the, the big database that you, are, that you founded here. And I mean, this is part of that, of, of course, also pandemics are part of the natural disasters that you're covering. Um, and pandemics are, of course, one of the most serious natural disasters that, that, that we can have because they can affect all of us at once. But then there are so many other natural disasters that are more common. I mean, on a yearly basis, you have floods, you have droughts, you have wildfires. What else? You have storms. Oh. Um, so these are occurring all the time. And... Um, uh, MDAT covers these very, very well. And, and, and I think we should explain to the, to the audience also that this, uh, this um, database, uh, you, you can delve deeper into this, please. But I'll just let, us, let me just say it briefly that it's, it's about uh, reporting uh, or it covers the, the reported disasters, the disasters that are being reported, which means that the more information there is, the more informed people are, the more mass commun the more mass communication there is in the world the the, the more uh, likely it is that people report disasters am i am i correct there and and this has also yeah this has historical bearing if you can just explain a little bit more how it works how you how you gather your information yes so um the database itself starts i mean we have data from 1900 onwards right so right from the beginning of last century we have um, it, and and as you can expect, any database like this is subject to reporting errors. Yeah, you mentioned it very clearly, subject to reporting errors. So you can always uh, hold any database, almost any database, um, to question, especially global ones, saying that, what about events that you're missing? Okay, what about the events? Yeah. This is what you say. So, so we have from 1900 onwards. And what do we see if we look at our data from 1900 onwards to today? Because we, our database collects data on natural disasters by, through using a definition. That's another important concept. We use a specific definition which allows comparison between one disaster and another because we have something called an inclusion criteria. So an event is added to our database if it meets a certain criteria. Every disaster must meet that criteria, those criteria with four criteria. And therefore what happens is that any disaster is comparable to another one because both of them have met the same criteria. It's like, an, it's like a medical experiment. You know, you enter a patient if that patient meets 
you know, X number of criteria. And so the patients can be compared. Kind of a tri- triage. Yes. You, 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 exactly. You, you remove some, you don't exclude, you don't include some, you exclude some. Those ones which don't meet your criteria, but what you have at the end are comparable across time and across space. So that's an important concept. Now, uh, when you look at the data from 1900 onwards, what you see is a very great increase in the number of disasters. And that is often used by um, many people, including Al Gore, if you remember who Al Gore is. <laughs> yes, um, I was going to ask about, not, not Al Gore specifically, but generally. Yes, I understand what yes. you're saying. So including by Al Gore, but very often people use our data, you know, to show that how natural disasters are increasing in the, in the world. Now, that is very, it has a big statistical problem, which we know and everybody else should know, is that as time has gone on, reporting has become much easier, as you mentioned, and as reporting becomes better, the number of events that enter our database increases. Not that it didn't happen before, just that it didn't get reported. Now, what does this imply? What it implies is that since about 1980s, and we have found, we have have the same, we have confirmatory information from Munich Reinsurance, which is one of the biggest insurance companies in the world with whom we work. And they report, they report economic losses from disasters. Is is that? They do. They do. They report economic losses. Uh, and they report also like us all the disaster events. Um, their, I mean, their, if you like, weakness or strength is depending on how you're looking at it. Is that they give much more importance to countries or disasters which have a high insurance penetration. They are not interested in losses that are not insured. That's not their no. clients. They insure insurance companies, and insurance companies are only interested in what they have insured. If they haven't insured, they don't care. So, you know, the small Bangladeshi peasant who has, you know, uh, 300 square meters of of land, um, and he has lost all his harvest, this is not of interest to them. So in their their statistics, the disaster situation looks worse in countries like the United States than it does in countries like Bangladesh. Is that correct? Exactly. exactly. And that's an extremely important bias. You know? So a hurricane in Florida, which touches Florida and then touches Cuba, okay? same hurricane, and even if it was, the intensity was higher in Cuba or Haiti, you will get a much higher loss. Mm. Florida, because every house has one swimming pool, four cars, you know, a house that costs God knows what, etc. So you see, the value of that house in Florida is going to be like, you know, a few hundred times more than the shack in Haiti. Mm. Right? So, so that makes a big bias. But let me come back to what you had asked about the national disasters and water. So what both Munich Reinsurance, we work very closely with Munich Reinsurance. So, you know, they're very, very technically, very absolutely top class, much better than us, actually. So what has happened is that in the 1980s, 1960s already, but by the time it's 1980, the telecommunications have become much cheaper. 
okay, and much more widespread. So, so 1980s already, it's very, it was very hard to have a big event, big disaster event that would escape our radar. Okay. So from 1980 onwards, I would say that our coverage has become very, very good. Um, you, it's very rare now, I would say, that if there is even a, uh, a big storm in Nouvelle Caledonie, in, in New Caledonia, or you know, some other, um, you know, Walise Futana or some Tuvalu, you know, all of these islands that <laughs> I hadn't heard of before, we would capture it. Mm. You know? so, so from 1980 onwards, I would say our data is quite complete. It's quite from 1980 already. Yeah, I remember when I was looking at the the diagram that you produced uh, before. You could see the the curves going up very steeply, as you say, uh, in almost all the disaster types uh, until 1980, and even a little bit further than that. I think up up till uh, 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 around the year 2000, actually. Uh, and, and then it and, didn't. And, and from there, it's been, it's been going down a little bit after maybe 2005 or so. Is, is, isn't that so? Yes. Yes. So the number of that's it's an interesting thing. And it creates a lot of, um, lot of uh, distress amongst the climate change um, Yes, they're getting because the, the, it's, it isn't increasing anymore. Yes, we get a lot of hate mail about the fact that our data shows that, you know, that there are, the disasters are not, you know, they start getting more and more and more disasters and they say, what the hell is going on in things. Now, what has happened is that um, it's true that the number of events that uh, fit our criteria have not been, it's not gone down, but it's not gone up either in any substantive way but what is quite interesting is that if you split up the 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 disasters into geophysical and climatological mm. okay so geophysical meaning volcanic volcanic eruptions tsunamis earthquakes dry landslides some of them. which has nothing to do with climate change of course has nothing to do with the climate if you take those those apart and you take the climate related ones, storms, droughts, floods, and so on and so forth. If you take that, the climate related ones are increasing. That's one. Not a lot, but they are increasing. Second thing, which I think is the most important message is that even though the events are not increasing, the severity of the events are increasing. So you have the same number of events, but each event is having a much higher impact, human impact. So more people are being affected, more people are driven out of their homes, more people are dying. Well, when you're talking about dying from these kinds of disasters, uh, when I've looked at the data, I've seen an, ex an extreme decline in the number of people that, that have died. And the, the, the last decade is, is the, the less lethal of all decades, if you go back to 1900, and it's, I mean, people died in the millions in floods in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s even. They don't do that now. So I, I, it's a bit odd, odd Why am I saying me. this? Why are you saying this? 
Why I haven't it? seen that in the statistics. No, no. It, you're right. You're right. The the number of dead, I don't think, I think the number of affected is not going down, but the number of dead. You're right. You're absolutely right. What I'm what I think I would like to clarify here is that I think the picture is different. And right now, I'm not, not able to give you precise statistics because I don't have it under my uh, hand. If you look at the whole picture, you are losing a lot of the refinements, which is available if you split the data up. So in mm. other words, what I'm saying is that there is a difference in looking at the aggregate picture. And if you look at by region and by disaster type. And I would go even so far to say, again, I don't have the statistics uh, available, that for some areas of the world, the floods, in Latin America, for example, if you look at the number of people who die per event, hmm. per event, so you're, you're now standardizing by event, not taking the whole thing like this. If you look at the number of people who die per event, you will see a slightly different, more refined dif differentiation. You will see that certain kinds of floods are actually having a higher death rate like flash floods, you're getting more flash floods. And flash floods tend to bring with them more deaths. So mm. what I'm trying to say is that I think the time has come that MDAT, looking at MDAT as a whole aggregated global thing, we have to put that aside. We've done it. We've done it for the last 20 years. Now we have to go drill down a little deeper and try to see you know, how floods or how storms are affecting by storm by country, and if possible, even by sub-regions of a country. Mm. So whether or not a storm which crashes right through Bangladesh, Myanmar, and goes into Laos, whether certain parts of the country is affected worse than other parts of the country for the same strength. All I'm trying to say is that, to put it short briefly, is that um, the vulnerability of human populations may be linked to their socioeconomic condition if you hold the disaster constant. So if it's the same disaster, if it's the same drought, mm. if you're essentially, if you're poorer, you're likely to be much more affected. And that is what we have to show. Well, to me, it seems obvious that the, the fact that there were so many more people dying from floods and droughts uh, 50, 60, 70 years ago than there is today, is that 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 uh, the population of the world has become less poor and we are more affluent uh, as a general rule and then there are exceptions of course but i mean countries like bangladesh for instance you mentioned even even that country has increased its uh, its um, uh, wealth and they have built um, uh, warning systems and they have built better buildings and they have built shelters and 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 um, uh, what do you call it when you when you build um, you try to shield the coastline from from storms embankments, embankments yes things like that so which means that, that embankments. The same, yeah a, a hurricane today or a cyclone today with the same strength as as a cyclone in 1971 wouldn't kill at all as many people as, as before so i mean you're that is absolutely right 
it is a very positive i think i think it does show that we have come a long way warning meteorological sciences is fantastic they have they can warn you know really really very early and very accurately now incredible i'm full of admiration for that discipline mm. admiration really they can tell you the only thing is sometimes as we have seen in cyclone nargis which was 80000 people killed in myanmar um 2008 i think um Yes, and that was interesting because it, there was another one in Bangladesh not not so many years before or after that, and then it was really different because you can see the the difference in wealth between Burma uh, or Myanmar and Bangladesh. Yes, yes. In the number of deaths, but also in Myanmar, what happened? You see, that's why we we are talking of early warning systems and how good they are and how meteorological predictions are so good. But you see, you can predict, but if the government doesn't have the response mechanisms on the ground if they don't give the radio signals if they don't have cyclone shelters if they don't give then you can have an early warning but nothing's going to happen and myanmar that's what happened the, the government did not sort of uh, transfer but to come back to your positive message and i think i would like to um, endorse that and be you know in in agreement with this is that there has been a lot of improvement in disaster preparedness this have what is happening now i think is the impact of natural disasters is concentrating in some areas and that is what we have to focus on we have to be able to say that in general the country is doing really well and you know it has a lot less people are being killed everything is working but there are certain persistent areas or vulnerable people and we have to be able to find those guys yeah well i guess there's a difference between saying that i mean we are doing better and fewer people are killed but we are still not satisfied because there are so many bad things going on and the, there are still disasters that are killing people so we have to do more i mean yes. two, two, two thoughts at the same time so to speak uh, but i mean many of these people who wants to who fear monger maybe you could call it uh, uh, they, they they tend to want to want to tell you that 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 everything is going go, is getting worse um, and the number of of uh, weather disasters are, are is increasing um i want to this is a little bit strange because you were talking about your own data and i i have a little bit i have a different picture in my head of your data because i was looking at these these numbers uh, many times during the, the last several years and I've, I've written a couple of articles about it and uh, i actually pinpointed the the actual weather-related disasters. Uh, I took away the geophysical ones, like 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 um, earthquakes and volcano eruptions. And I still, when I did that, even when I had done that, I could see that, that there was a slight decline, at least as from 2005 onwards. Mm -hmm. It was not very very steep, but there was a slight decline. It was, it, at any rate, there was no increase, uh, no. and. When I spoke to you a couple of years ago, I had this specific question about uh, a piece in The Lancet. Uh, Nick Watts, I think, was the, 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 the lead author of this report. They used MDAT data to, to, to claim that, uh, at that point, that extreme weather events had gone up by 46% in the two decades up to 2016. And this was repeated in leading news media. And it was repeated even by, by politicians, like the Swedish Minister of Environment, 
uh, it was repeated as if this were a scientific fact, but I mean, it, it wasn't really a scientific fact, was it? To say that it had gone up 46% no, from 1996 to 2016, you know, that's, that's, that's a huge increase. And they had just looked at your numbers and they had, they, they, they had kind of looked at the curves and, and started at one point and ended at another point and, and, and just come to the conclusion, oh, it, there's an increase of 46%, but it was a bit, something was fishy with that. I'm just sorry to, to be the one who tells you what, <laughs> what your statistics show, but, but, but there was something not really, not really accurate about that. I can't, you know, I remember this thing because we got calls also about this. Um, there was something, now you've, you've got me short a bit. Um, you've got me short. I have a feeling that, you see, uh, it's true. What is true is that in the last 10 years or maybe a little more than that, uh, as you say, the numbers, average number of disasters per year has not changed very much. It has been a little less than 400 or a little more than 400, but it's been a about that, about the same. Now, if you take that last decade or, you know, so, and compare it to three decades before, it's going to be higher. Of course, yeah, okay. because of the re reporting, huh? Yes, because of the reporting, exactly. Now, Nick from where he got to 46%, I don't, I mean, I remember digging into this a little bit. I, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, then, then you get into your sort of, a, you know, unending yeah. argument, the lens at which I wasn't prepared to do. Um, from where they got this 46%, I cannot tell because we don't, we don't see it. But, you know, you don't know how they count, how they counted things. You know, if you count in, depending on whether or not they counted the same disasters in the two periods, because we have biological, we have technological, we have a um, whole bunch of other stuff. I mean, you know, and I don't know. I think, what, I think he was referring to, to weather-related uh, disasters. Only weather-related, you think? I see. Because that was what the report was about, climate change and health. You looked into it at that time, did you? Did you? Yes, did yes you? I did. As far as I remember, I, 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 could, I could detect that they had chosen two points on the curve that were, I mean, if you, cho if you chose those two, two coordinates, you would, you would get a, an increase of that kind. But, but, yeah, if, but if you choose something else, it would have been different. It would have been zero or, or less anyway. So that's as far as I recall. Um, I still, okay, I mean, apart, apart from, I cannot give you an exact answer of how he calculated and, and also, as you rightly say, if you move the, it's a very unstable way of doing it because if you move those points around, your answer is completely different. And so there is no robustness in that kind of comparison. But be that as it may, it's also true that even today, Anders, we, we, have people quoting us saying that as the MDAP database shows, the, the number of disasters are increasing in an in a alarming way. It's not increasing in an alarming way. It's really- So where, where do they get that from? You know, I think they, 
I think it's wishful thinking. It's like, it's wishful thinking in the sense, I think that the climate movement needs to have, as though there's not enough problems with the climate in the world. You know, we have a lot of problems with the climate, but I think it makes it difficult for the climate disaster movement to be able to say that, hey, look, the number of disasters at this time is not increasing. It does not mean that there is no problem with the climate change. There is still a very big problem with the climate change, but the number of disastrous events are not increasing. Maybe the number of affected people are increasing, but it really needs to be looked into. But I think there is a reluctance because it's an easy statistic. Climate disasters are increasing. Yeah, it's an easy, uh, it's an easy slogan. Um, and we always have we do a press conference every year. And in the last two years, uh, we've said a press conference. We've said you know there's not been an increase, and this has been a very good year. You know things like that. And we've we're, nobody wants good news, Anders. I know <laughs> that's nobody. the problem. So, because I mean, if you if you so, if you if you, if you uh, market a number like like uh, the Lancet countdown did at that time, forty six percent increase in twenty years, I mean, you have a responsibility because you you have to understand that people taking part of this will I mean they are not experts they would just take it as a as a, as a basic number and a, and a number that you can extrapolate perhaps into the future, yeah. which would mean that the number of <laughs> Weather extremes would like increase hundreds and hundreds of percent the, the coming decades, which is, which is simply not true. And 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 uh, I mean, you just have to delve a little bit into it to realize that that's that that's the case. Yeah, and, and I so think. What, what, what do you think? What do you think about these? Uh, you were talking about the politics of death tolls, and maybe this is the politics of uh, of uh, disaster trends. Uh, how do you, how do you, what do you think about these these kinds of? Uh, you yes. know, the, 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 it's, a, it's a bit, uh, I mean, we sit, I would sit in a sort of between a rock and a hard stone because on one hand, what you don't want to do is to send out a message saying, hey guys, you can stop everything because, you know, things are going really well and see there are no more new disasters, just give it all up and, you know, um, we can sit back pretty and, you know, smoke our cigars and drink our port or whatever it is that people want to do. Um, you don't want that. You see, you don't want to give a message of complacency by saying that. So, so on the other hand, I think it's, that's one point. Second point is that I have taken a position of not fighting every battle. So, you know, I'm not going to go this is not a Twitter game. Um, <laughs> I'm not well, I guess that, that's a very good thing, that it's not a Twitter yeah. game. No, it's not a Twitter game. And I'm not going to go into that kind of thing. Um, and our, you know, we put our data up, you know, and it's open data, it's public, you know, people can do what they like. I mean, I've had people in my own team come and say, have you seen what they've said? And, you know, I'm like, you know, people can say what they like. I cannot, we cannot go into and fight every battle. So for, for, I think for us, 
the message we are now preparing the press conference for the next year and we are also preparing something for the world disaster day with the un drr disaster risk reduction what used to be isdr um, what we have to do i think what we are trying to do is that the global policy and regional policy must now be much more serious in trying to identify what we call in epidemiology high-risk groups so we have to be able to be more refined more sophisticated and better analysis to be able to identify high-risk groups within countries so that we are able to tell countries which are at which are very disaster prone droughts in africa and things that hey guys you have to focus on these groups of people who are at the highest risk this is what but to say sort of you know things all over the world this that and i think that we have to move out of we have to move out of and i would like to say something here in you know you can decide whether you want to put it up in the same direction what we have started now is we have started a collaboration between cred us and that uh, a center a max planck institute you know the max planck in germany yes yes sure yeah it's a very very good they have one called biogeochemistry these are highly specialized um environment satellite and ecological data guys you know they they monitor earth surface and things like that those guys us and a third group from netherlands from neymagen who are uh, who's at, at socioeconomics who have very high resolution data on poor countries in poor countries high resolution data in the sense they have district level data of poverty okay. education women's rights etc we are bringing all this together our data which have, we are now geo, geo referenced the max planck guys and the dutch guys we are bringing it all together to be able to identify very very refined way the exact areas in a country where the disasters having the greatest impact mm, so great we're trying to do something which is much more focused well, uh, Debbie, I can understand that you don't want to end up in uh, between uh, a rock and a hard place. <laughs> Doesn't sound very uh, nice place to be. So this that you are describing now is uh, truly commendable, of course. And um, I wish you all the best with that work, uh, which is really important. And this database that you that you initiated is so good and so important. And uh, hopefully you will. Uh, you will um, uh, your your work will will uh, mean that that we can together better the world a little bit more because data is the base of of uh, a lot of the improvement that is going on thank yes. you very much for joining the podcast show debbie thank you anders thank you for inviting me this was um, it was good it makes me think this kind of uh, dialogue and discourse yes thank you <laughs>